Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, today I'm going to, uh, I have a show entitled, I Want My Marijuana. And I have to give you a little bit of background to this uh, story, why, why I picked this particular piece to do. Um, there's really uh, several influences in this. The first is that I started doing, uh, I find myself starting to uh, do a series of shows on maturity. And when I listened to my show, last one I did, I kind of feel it was claustrophobic. It's not that I don't feel that mothers and fathers and families don't shape us. I do. And that the, the, you know, the, the most immediate concern of most people when they're unhappy is to talk about what happened to them within their families. Hi, Marion. How are you? Uh, but it's claustrophobic. The backdrop of so much of what's going on in my life, in the world I live in, not just my personal life, but my personal life, and I'll talk about this as it relates to what's going on politically and economically and socially in the country. Um, I'm watching a campaign unfold in which it seems to me nothing important is being discussed except the character's of the of the individuals running who's the nicer guy whose ad is the more truthful or whose ad uh, violates uh, some norm who's more obnoxious uh, who's more liberal or conservative meanwhile i just filled up my car and i paid over seventy dollars for a tank of gas now i bought a car that uses more gas than i have two cars one is a little one and in fact, my wife and I are going to drive up to New York this week and take the little more uncomfortable one because it'll cost me half as much uh, to, to go to New York and back. But people are, are dying over economic issues. And the larger economic issue, the larger issue of gas, is that nobody is talking about plans for an alternative, something that should have been done 30 years ago. Uh, nine soldiers were killed today in Afghanistan. Uh, this is on a back page. Uh, there, there seems to be a terrible malaise, a terrible uh, uh, claustrophobia, not only in the show I did, but in the kind of thinking that goes on around me. People seem to be escaping rather than thinking about solutions to real-life problems. So I came across an ad July 12th, a couple of days ago, entitled, not an ad, I'm sorry, a story in the New York Times, Psychiatric Group Faces Scrutiny Over Drug Industry Ties, and a fellow named uh, Charles Grassley, a Republican of Iowa, is holding uh, hearings. And it turns out that most of these psychiatrists that are being, who are famous now in the country, uh, are taking money from industry at unbelievable record amounts while drugs are being sold to people uh, for anxiety, for depression, that to me seems to grow out of the very life that we're all living, but which are now, again, being called illnesses to be treated. Right? And I've talked about this many times, but the, 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 the third piece of this 
is that I went to the library looking for something to read, because I have lots of time to read, and I found another book by Thomas Zoss, who continues to amaze me with the clarity of his thinking and the courage of his writing. And every time I see another one of his books, I say, well, it's going to be the same thing as, as the myth of mental illness or the myth of, myth of psychotherapy, books that everybody should read because they're so seminal, they're so basic to understanding uh, how our government and the psychiatrists which work for government and big business are helping us deal with problems by not dealing with problems and helping us uh, live in a world that's ever more claustrophobic and empty of real information. And this book is called Our Right to Drugs, The Case for a Free Market. And I, I can't recommend this book enough. Uh, I looked on Amazon. You can get used copies of this for uh, $8. Uh, I got it out free out of the library, and it turns out that the publisher is Prager, P-R-A-E-G-E-R, uh, who, who published my last three books. So I have a nice feeling for Prager, although Zass uh, doesn't write as theoretical and as abstract I do, which makes his ideas much punchy. I mean, they, they hit you. And I read this, this book uh, in a couple of hours, and, and I'm rereading it. And by the way, I'm going to take a long time to develop this, this show for a variety of reasons. Um, so if I don't finish today, I'll finish in a few weeks. This will be my last show for a couple of weeks because uh, when I go up, I'm going to take a vacation from everything. Although, how can you take a vacation from a vacation, <laughs> which is the way I live at this point? And this book hit me over the head, and it hit me over the head because it seems to me that when Zas says, we should be able to grow our own marijuana and smoke it as we wish or eat it or do it as we wish because it's so fundamental a freedom to ingest, to eat, to deal with your own body. That when he says this, it sounds refreshing, but it also sounds unbelievably radical. Unbelievably radical. The idea that this might be possible, or that once it was the way it was. Uh, I pick marijuana, I could pick heroin, I could pick a variety of other drugs. I'll mention them along the way in this show or the series of shows. But he points out that at, when the founding fathers, who, by the way, must be turning over in their grave at the way we're all living and reacting to our government and what our government is doing to us, uh, hello? 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 Lou? Yes. Yeah, Lou, are you listening? Yeah. Well, no, because I can't, I can't reach you. I just called in. Oh, okay. Um, you're on now. Okay. Well, um, let me develop this, and you'll, you'll chime in when you want. Okay, fine. Okay? Yeah. Uh, my, my, my caller is Louis Wynn who is a good friend, who's also an admirer and a friend of Thomas Zoss. Um, and I don't know if he agrees with my point on this, but we'll find out as we go along, uh, whether he does or doesn't. Uh, his thinking is so clear, and I, I respect his opinion so much that this should add a nice dimension to, to this show um, or, or, the, or the series of the shows. 
the idea, said Zas, is that our, our founding fathers believed in a free market. They believed in freedom, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, although the Constitution was argued that it should be life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And I want to pose a problem for you. I want to pose something for you as my listener. Uh, let's say I do a live in a house, and I take a small part of my backyard, and I make a garden, and I grow marijuana. Marijuana, back at the time of the founding fathers, he points out, was called hemp. And it's still called hemp. And it was a big cash crop. People used it for all manner of things. It was made into rope. It was made or had all kinds of industrial uses. People smoked it, ate it, put it in their cookies. Um, and they did this like people take all drugs to feel better or not to feel worse. And nobody would have ever thought that this shouldn't be grown or that people should be put in jail like I would if I grew a garden of marijuana. Now, let's say I grew this garden of marijuana and I used it in my cookies or I used it to smoke. And um, 30 years ago, I did. I didn't grow my own, although my brother grew his own. He grew it in my mother's apartment and told her it was tomato plants. When I walked in, my mother said, isn't it wonderful? Your brother was growing tomato plants. I didn't know whether to choke or laugh. Um, but I smoke marijuana, and if I grew it in my backyard, I would smoke it now. Uh, my stomach is a little upset, and so instead of having a glass or two of wine tonight, I would smoke a joint. I would consider this, and I think the founding fathers would consider this, nothing big deal. No big deal at all. Um, now, what could happen if I grew my marijuana is that if somebody saw it, I would very likely be reported to the police. I would be arrested. My house could be taken over and, and uh, be given to the state as property. I would likely go to jail. And there I would be um, uh, interviewed by a psychiatrist who wouldn't say that I was using hemp or cannabis or marijuana, three equal names to the drug, but that I was a sick person, I was an addict, and I was in need of treatment. And the treatment would be forced on me, probably because I'd be in jail. It might even be a condition of my not going to jail, since it might be the first time offense that I've done this. And all of this would happen, my life would be destroyed, my life would be ruined, and I would be a pariah among almost everybody I know. Simon is a criminal and a drug addict. He grew and he smoked marijuana. Now notice, I'm not talking about giving it to children, and I'm not talking about anything but my own personal use in my own home. And Zas argues, and I totally agree with him, that this is so fundamental a right for me to grow and ingest what I wish. And yet it's so alien, probably to you who are listening. When I tried to explain the show to my wife and show her the book, she said, I disagree. Not even going into what the argument might be and the case might be for my doing this. Now notice, I'm not talking about whether marijuana is harmful or not harmful. It is harmful if it's used incorrectly. It may be even harmful if it's used correctly. But that's not the issue. Cigarettes, which are legal, we know from a variety of sources, are far more harmful, far, 
far more harmful than marijuana. They cause more problems. They cause more death. Alcohol, which is legal, although uh, a, a very good effect that was made to make it illegal during the time of prohibition in the 1920s, um, where people's lives were destroyed, and much of the criminal activity that surrounded alcohol, which now surrounds marijuana or heroin or cocaine, um, uh, was a mess. It was a horror. Because all of these intrusions into our life create all manner of terrible consequences politically, etc. Now, that's what made me want to do this show. The shock I had in my own mind, in my wife's mind, in everybody else's mind, at this point in 2008, when none of the big issues that I can see that are important to our life are being discussed by anybody, except, you know, it's celebrity time, and it's, it's, it's Barack Obama's wife nice, is John uh, uh, McCain old, too old, nothing but personal issues, what kind of underwear they wear, whether or not they did smoke, whether they had an affair, Nothing really related to the life I live or the sources of anxiety that I have are discussed. And yet, if I grew some marijuana and I was caught by doing this, my life would be destroyed and I'd be handed over with a permanent diagnosis of illness and nobody questions it. It is taken as the absolute truth. You want to respond to that for a second, uh, Lou? Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you fine. Okay, good. Well, you, you raise a number of issues, of course. Um, uh, one, one question that needs to be asked is, why did things change and when did they change? When did it become illegal uh, to consume drugs uh, of any kind? When did it become illegal? And, and it, the answer, of course, is about 100 years ago, give yes. or take. But I want well, to save that issue, Lou, oh, okay. because while it's an important issue... It really would be involved in going through Zas's book because he gives a detailed history. Okay. Right. The original uh, control over any kind of drugs was done by the government because people were putting things into drugs and mislabeling them. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't disagree with that. He believes that there should be truth. When you look at a bottle of something, it should say what's in it. The issue of whether the drugs were good or bad for you was never an issue. It was caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Because in a free market, he believes that it should be the issue. And I do too. But I want to get to this, the psychology of this, the consequences, because we're psychologists. And I think the way our minds are being shut down and the way we fear even talking about issues like this uh, are part of the reason why celebrity and emptiness fills up a culture that I think, and I think you agree with me, is absolutely dying. It's going down. So I agree with you. One important issue is the history. But maybe another show, I really would like to keep that off on a back burner. Okay. What was your next uh, issue you want to well, raise? Well, I, 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 the, next, the next issue that I think is raised by your discussion is... <clears throat> how our society, how American society has changed, uh, and you can draw the line wherever you want, but uh, we could draw the line conveniently in an election year, let's call it 1968, that America has become, I think you and I would agree, and you and I are about the same age, 
I think I got you beat by a couple of three years. A couple of years, maybe. Yeah. <clears throat> but, but you and I would certainly agree that this is not the nation in which we were raised. No, and no. It's different, it is different from the nation in which we were raised in a number of significant ways. Uh, and, and our attitude towards celebrities, for example, uh, well, my, my pet peeve, if you will, certainly my wife's pet peeve is that we complain a lot about uh, teenage pregnancy and so forth, and yet a vast industry, in fact, probably the industry that is, is, is more important to the United States today than any other industry, that is the entertainment industry, uh, it, it, it spreads our, our American influence far and wide throughout the world. Uh, they celebrate out of out of wedlock marriage. Yes. An, an old-fashioned term, out of wedlock marriage. We've got people like Angelina Jolie and, and so on. These people have children. They don't bother getting married, and 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 our society celebrates that. Well, what are kids supposed to think? Now, yes. these things would have been absolutely unthinkable. Thinkable, unthinkable. Absolutely. When you and I were teenagers, Larry. This would have been absolutely unthinkable. You see, now, I'm not going to take a position on the goodness or badness of this. I just want to agree with you, though, that the world that of most of the people who are going to listen to this show is not the world we grew up in. Mm-hmm. You follow? It's not really the world. In fact, I once said to students maybe 15 years ago, in 1968, and it was 68 that I picked, I went to sleep and I woke up on another planet. Yeah, Exactly. It was a planet on the other side of the sun that looks exactly like the Earth in all details, but it's different. It's an anti-Earth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I suppose while you and I, I'm not saying making a value judgment, I don't like the world we're living oh, in no, now. Oh, I, I no, would, I would disagree with you. I am making a value judgment. I think, uh, and I realize that a lot of people will throw, will throw up their hands in horror but I think the data would support my position that a child needs two a people. A family. A family that are legally committed. And I use the word legally. Legally committed to one another. That a man and wife uh, are needed to raise a child, and they should be legally committed. I, I, let me tell you, I can't tell you how many people that I see in my own practice, day in and day out, who have children, are not married, are not going to get married, they have no legal commitment to each other, and they don't realize that their kids know this. It gives the kids a sense of anxiety because they don't know from one day to the next. Well, let's move it back. Here. I, totally, I totally agree with you, but let's move it back to my marijuana. Okay. Because one of the reasons that these kids are being raised by psychiatrists, school teachers, mm-hmm. and others who have swallowed hook, line, and sinker the view that they're sick you see, not that they've adapted to a specific kind of world, but that they're sick. It's because of the total package of how they're being raised. And that was the point I raised in, in a number of my books, my last books, that we tell stories. Children will tell the stories of their life, but the stories reflect the world they live in. And those stories contain an image that we have of ourselves and our relationships. What are we bound into? What's worth living for and what's worth dying for? It contains the skills we possess, our goals for the future, how we express our individuality. So the economic, religious, political, social system that we're raised in shapes our thinking, shapes our skills, 
and ultimately the story we live in. And the children you and I now, well, I don't see anymore, but, but the children we meet, including my own grandchildren, tell stories about their life and about society that are so different than the stories we told. And I agree with you. I, my wife and I were talking about what a difficult time to try and raise children. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to hang on to. But you can always count on being told you're sick and that you need therapy and you need drugs. Well, it's the, it's, That's it's, the given. That's yeah. the center. It's, it's, a brilliant, it's a brilliant ploy to make people feel not responsible for what they do. They can say, I'm sick. I'm sick. I, I, uh, I, I don't drink too much, and I'm not drunk a lot, but that I have a disease called alcoholism. And, but that's and, even beside the issue, in my view. Well, no, but I, the issue I, is I want I drink, and I was raised that if I drink or smoke marijuana or do anything, I was responsible for my actions. Okay. Yes. I drank in front of my children. I drank. I would have smoked marijuana in front of my children, but by the time that came about in the seventies. The devil was already equated with marijuana, mm -hmm. and if I did get caught, my career would have been over. I don't think I would have gone to jail. It, was, it wasn't as draconian, as awful. I mean, at this point, America has more people in prison. Uh, let me see. Where is somebody else here? Matt? Yeah. Matt? Matt? Yeah. Matt? Yeah. Oh, how you doing? Hello. Matt? How you doing, Matt? Pretty good. What, what Matt? I'm what, hearing what, Matt, myself. I'm hearing myself. What's happened? What kind of phone? What's happened? What kind of phone? Uh, I'm on a uh, webcam. On a what? On a what? On a webcam. Yeah, I, this is. Yeah, a, I'm, I'm getting this feedback. Is a, I'm getting feedback. How about now? Let me hear. Let me hear. No, yeah. Can you hear my feedback? I can't yeah. do that. Yeah. I can't do that. Oh, okay. All right. Anyway. Um, the way we're being shaped, to go back to that, that point, I hope Matt can come back on with something that, that uh, is a little less complicated technologically, um, so that, that the, 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 my right is taken away because the concept that we've been taught to our children is that they're not responsible because they're damaged goods. Exactly. You see, not, the parent isn't responsible for raising the child. There, there is no, there, nobody responsible for, for anything they do. If I ever heard a, a, a politician take responsibility for the mess that his policies made, I would fall down and die. Mm -hmm. I would say, I die, I'm go wait, I must have gone to sleep and woken up back in the world that I was raised in. Right. Although I've never known politicians to, to take much responsibility. They're a class of folks who... Um, just the very fact that they want that kind of power, I talk about that all the time, uh, scares me. They're not humble enough. They really should be humble about the awesome responsibility that they're taking. But I drank in front of my kids, and one of my goals was not to hide the fact that I drank because it was legal. It was proper, and alcohol is a lovely part of my life. I've never damaged my life by drinking wine. I belong to a wine club down here. And one of the nicest nights of the month is we get together and we share uh, our favorite wine. And I'm learning a tremendous amount about it. 
but we don't get drunk. We don't do anything wrong. We don't get into our cars afterwards and drive and have accidents. This is done in a responsible manner. What the government and the drug companies are saying now, the, pharmace- the, the, the medical, is that if I smoke marijuana, it's out of my control. I can't even stop on my own. I can't choose. There's no choice involved because this is a disease very similar to a possession by the devil. Larry, we we are also uh, a a, a zero-tolerance society. Yeah, for the devil. And marijuana and opium and and heroin, these are now the devil. Mm -hmm. And what we're being driven by is this terrible fear that we're going to be possessed by this devil. It's a lie. There are no devils to possess us. And most of the, you know, the, the, the first time I was ever shocked by the amount of lying that was given to us by official channels according to, to drugs was in a course I had with Isidore Chine. I, I've mentioned him to you yeah, before. Yeah. Chine did a massive study with two other people that was published in a book called The Road to H. <clears throat> where he uh, did a sociological study of heroin use uh, in varying classes of people and how heroin was used. And everybody who read the study expected to hear what was then the truth. One touch of heroin and you're hooked for the rest of your life. Right, right. And what he discovered was most people who use heroin use it the same way as they use alcohol. They take it or leave it. They may use it for small periods of time or longer periods of time. They give it up. Most do not commit crimes, except for the fact that if it becomes too expensive, and they do then get addicted. And I'm going to work about, I want to talk about that word addiction, because talk about a magical word, addiction. Mm-hmm. But if they, if they feel a need for it, then, and the people we're always being shown as to the truth of the drug is that group of individuals who abuse it. It would be as if people who drink and drive and have crashes are the basis for outlawing alcohol because they abuse the use of the drug, of the alcohol, and did what shouldn't be done. Most people don't do that. It's just not happening. Okay? If you do drink and drive, it's an act of irresponsibility. And, and, and I agree that there should be severe penalties for that because of all the lives and the damage uh, that have been lost because of, of, of irresponsible behavior. Making it criminal is perfectly okay, although it's only in recent years that drinking and driving even has a criminal issue to it. You were sick, and well, you had to go to treatment. You're not really responsible. The alcohol made you do it. One of, one of the other lies that we're, we're, that we're told uh, is that uh, heroin addiction is uh, something that is irresistible and impossible to escape? Yes. The truth of the matter, the truth of the matter is, you can, you can uh, become become free of uh, heroin addiction in a in a long weekend. It will be like a, a bad case of the flu for about uh, three or four days, and then you'll be free of it. It is not the horror that we are all told it is. Exactly. And that's what Shine found in the early, late 50s and early 60s. You know, over the years... I... What the hell is that? Hello? 
Yeah, I'm still. Uh, sorry, I dropped my phone. Oh, well, I was wondering. Uh, yeah. I thought maybe we're being attacked by the government for what we're saying. Um, I had over the years. I had people who had come to me. A number of people who had gone to AA because of uh, periods of heavy drinking. And they were told they had alcoholism as a disease. This was beyond their control. And if they ever took another drink, they'd be back on the wagon. Mm-hmm. And again, when I first started to work with these individuals, I queried some of my colleagues because there was three of these very distinct people who said, I'd like to now in my life, I'm not the same person I was when I got into trouble with alcohol. I'd like to be able to go out and have a glass of wine with my new husband and enjoy dinner like a real person. She said, this person said to me, AA put a floor under my feet. It did. But then it put a roof over my head that was 18 inches from the floor. (laughs) I'm suffocating. And she said, what do you think? And I asked some of my colleagues, and the answer was the same. The minute she puts alcohol in her mouth, she's dead. She's finished. She'll be off the wig, and she's going to be an alcoholic again. Alcoholism is an incurable disease. Well, it's, and again, it's the zero tolerance. And they're zero tolerance. black or they're white. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what I did with her. Uh, we talked about it. Uh, I never, like with any client, ever gave her permission to do anything of the kind. But I said to her, this is your choice. And we talked about how she had abused alcohol the time she did it in her life when she had been abandoned by her husband and and had three children. And by the way, did damage to those children uh, in the fact that um, uh, she drank so heavily during their formative years. Mm -hmm. She, She took responsibility for this. I mean, you could say you're sorry, but the damage was already done. But this was now 35 years later. She's not the same person, she said. And so we talked about responsible drinking. How do you drink? How do you put the brake on? How much do you drink? Do you take it with food? In other words, do you, you slop down three drinks before? Is it going to be one or two with dinner in a way, in a restaurant? Are you going to set up limits? Mm-hmm. And we talked about this for a couple of months. And I could tell you, 10 years later, she would have a drink or two or three a week. It never went more. It never went less. Mm -hmm. It went into her life like a pleasant piece of something that, for the civilized world, is a nice glass of wine with dinner. Mm -hmm. I've had three clients like that. And whenever I even try to talk about that, I had my head handed to me by my colleagues. How dare you? My responsibility was to tell her she could not do this. It was not within her capacity to defeat that disease. No tolerance. She's defective. And the whole point of all of this, with drugs and everything else, is that we're teaching everybody in our society, Lou, that they are nothing but shells, that they have to be terrified of themselves, that they need outside help, in every way. I, one more. I, I, one more. Did you ever smoke cigarettes, Lou? Oh, oh very, very briefly as a teenager. A teenager. I yeah. smoked from the time I was 15 to the time I was 25. Uh-huh. And when my wife announced she was pregnant, because my wife, my husband, my husband, my father had died of a coronary very early, mm-hmm. and he was a three or four pack a day smoker. He was also overweight. He was also, 
his, his anxiety and his, his rage with things that came out of the Depression that were things I won't really talk about. But there was a whole concomitant set of issues mm-hmm. that I think contributed to his, his early demise. Well, when my wife became pregnant, I said, I'm going to give it up, especially because by this time, the information was coming out, being fought by the uh, tobacco companies tooth and nail, that there really was a link between heart disease and lung cancer and a variety of other serious illnesses and, and cigarette smoking. It was not as glamorous as John Garfield and, and uh, Humphrey Bogart yeah, yeah. would appear to have made it in their movies. I gave it up, and I discovered during that period, 70% of Americans were smoking, and by the end of the 60s, 30% of Americans were smoking. 50, 60 million people stopped smoking, Lou. Yeah. They did it without programs. They did it without patches. They did it without drugs. They did it without counselors. You did it. You suffered a couple of weeks. You said, oh, I want my cigarettes, like I want my marijuana, or I want anything else. Yeah. And you said, I make a choice. Right? <laughs> and if the choice between dying young and leaving your wife and children is, has a greater consequence than the pleasure or the release of the smoking, that becomes a motive, that becomes a reinforcer for not doing it. Not yeah. anymore, Lou. Yeah. Not anymore. I watch television. You can't do it without a patch. You can't do it without a pill. You can't do it without a smoking program. You can't do it without some expert who's going to sell you something and make a fortune selling it. And I don't think as many people are able to get off with those programs as those of us who did, who said, I'm throwing away my cigarettes and I'm going to suffer. You know, Mm -hmm. some years later, many years later, a, a businessman friend of mine said, you know, uh, you gave up smoking. Why don't we start, start a stop smoking program? And he did some advertising. We had about 110 people come in for the first meeting. And I talked a little bit about my experience. And I said, you can do this. You don't have to do it. with. It's not, not great difficulty. You see, you can suck your thumb. You can go get a pacifier. You can do anything you want to do. We talked about different kind of substitutes. But ultimately, I said, you've got to suffer a little to give up the smoking because it's important to you. Six people showed up the next day, the uh-huh. next meeting. Yeah. Because I, and he never spoke to me again. He said, how dare you use the word suffer? You can't tell people that if they change their life on some important issue, they're going to suffer. You have to show it's going to be painless. They don't have to learn a skill of how to stop. And that, to me, is the point. We are becoming a skillless nation, a nation without skills. And without skills, a nation without hope. Well, you can see, and again, I don't want to pull you off your point, but you can see that in terms of the economy and our balance of payments and so on. We are no longer a producing nation. We don't produce anything. Something like uh, 18 to 20 percent of the gross domestic product goes into things that other nations would buy. The other 80 percent, give or take, are all in services, the, uh, the kind of thing that you and I provide, which nobody in his right mind would, would think they even need. Yes, absolutely. 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 And I don't see a way out of this 
unless we all start to speak up into some kind of and again, if you speak up, you're going to be labeled politically. I don't know if I'm going to be called liberal for this or conservative for this. God help me if I'm called liberal to the conservatives and conservative if I'm called, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Because the label now becomes the thing. Yeah. Well, one other thing I'd like to add, and again, I just put this on your agenda for some future discussion. We probably don't want to do it today. There isn't time. But we are also a nation without a past. Um, yes. Several, several, uh, oh, a couple of years ago, maybe not quite that, uh, I heard this coming out of the mouth, mouth of a defense policy analyst um, talking about the Iraq situation. And he said, and it, I, I believe this with my, my whole being, that Americans hate history. We don't like history, anybody's history, including our own as individuals. For example, I'm one of the few psychologists left, I think, who actually takes the time to take a comprehensive history of his or her clients. Nowadays, they simply ask, for, what are your symptoms? I got the pill for you. Symptoms, and uh, here's, the, here's the script. Here's, here's the, the script, yeah. Uh, this is why so many psychologists are pushing for prescription privileges for psychologists, because clinical psychology ha is disappearing rapidly as, as a, a, an area of expertise and competence. We have all become junior psychiatrists, and psychiatrists themselves have become nothing but shills for drug companies. But that's By the way, this point. article, it, horrendous article uh, uh, at the times that we spoke about earlier. For example, um, uh, in a scientific publication, Dr. Del Bello has reported working for eight drug makers and told university officials that from 2005 to 2007, she earned $100,000 in outside income. Outside income, yeah. But AstraZeneca told Mr. Grassley it paid her more than $238,000 in that period. Mm -hmm. And she insists that this money does not in any way bias her as a scientist. Yeah, well, well psychiatrists <coughs> aren't scientists to start with. And we can, well, that, that's right. a completely yes. separate, separate discussion about yes, why... Secular priests who are fighting the yes. evil that used to be called sin, that used to be called vice, if we go to drugs. Zas makes the wonderful point that vice is not a crime. You may see it as a moral weakness, as a moral issue, yeah. but it's not a crime. And the whole job of your upbringing, hopefully by parents and teachers and clergy, was to understand the skill of managing vice. Mm-hmm. Because the consequences of vice. See, I'm not arguing for people to take drugs. I think you know that. Yeah. I'm not arguing. It's my right to take a drug if I wish. It's my right. But I'm not advertising or saying that anybody should exercise that right unless they want to. And then if they do, take responsibility, full responsibility, and there should be then truth in advertising for any kind of pill that you take. And you and I know that the crap you now take from the psychiatrist, there's very little truth in advertising. God only knows what's in that. Well, it, it, yeah, these drugs, uh, and I, can, uh, I, I, have, I have clients, I don't call them patients, of course. I have clients who have been on psychotropic medications for 20, 30, even 40 years. Um, and, and their decline is perceptible. Yes. There are things they no longer can do that they used to be able to do. And I have said to them, I have tried for years to convince you that you must get off this stuff and now look at you. And, you know, and, 
And, of course, to say that you've only got yourself to blame, which is what my mother used to say to me in that pre-1968 era. In other words, you are responsible, at least at some level, for what has happened to you. Well, you're not allowed to say that to people. No, it doesn't exist. You're a victimless victim, you see. And, and nobody is responsible for anything. Right, right. And you and I know that the people we've worked with all of our lives were real victims. But the tragedy is that the victimization was not seen in moral terms, and we no longer see our work, either as teachers, as educators, as saying to people, look, you've been hurt and you've been victimized. It's now time to take the hammer that you were hit in the head with and put it down because you're hitting yourself in the head with the hammer. Mm -hmm. Instead of teaching skills, instead of reinforcing those behaviors that will allow people to change the world they live in, and that's the other thing prior to 68, you and I were raised to make the world a better place. Yes, absolutely. You now adjust to it. You have to be well adjusted. You have to be happy at all times. You have to be smiling, and you have to have lots of friends no matter how crappy your friends really are. <laughs> Nothing still... By the way, I'm get, we're getting a wonderful response. Nikki Starr, who's... Uh, what does Nikki do? I think she, she, she manages the, the blog talk radio in some way. She has a, her own great show uh, in the morning. I keep meaning to go on her show and more and talk. I've been on a couple of times. Uh, but they're having a wonderful discussion on, on my, um, on my uh, uh, chat and uh, and and uh, we're getting a good response to this. I wish more people would get online. I don't understand why people don't do that. But anyway, uh, that's another story. Uh, I think I'm going to have to stop. What happened to the rest of my... Are you still with me? I'm still here. Oh, I thought I cut myself off the air. <laughs> I still don't have to... I, I still don't know enough of, of the technology of this. I'm an antiquarian. <laughs> anyway, I love that you came on, Lou. Well, thanks. And you, I, I, we, I did a series with four shows with uh, Grace Jackson. Uh-huh. And dynamite response. She's absolutely fabulous. And one of the things I, I, I want to do is, is when we do this is also offer people, because if that's the, 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 how do we get out of the mess we're in? How do we get out of the mess? How do we get people to join together to say, no more of this bullshit. These are lies we're being given. We're not sick. We're unhappy. We're confused. And what we've become is skillless, like little babies. Maturity is something I defined always as being able to be responsible and smart enough to know when to join with others, know when to be part of the group, when to remain an individual, how to express yourself according to high standards, of creativity. I mean, these are all moral terms, but they're descriptive in, in what, what they imply. Well, I, I have only simplistic answers, and they're cliches, but, but one I would say is this. There are lots of other people who think the way we do, but you will not meet them on television. The no. first thing you have to do is turn off the television, because yes. that's, the mechanism, that's the mechanism by which the powers in our society influence us. I agree. I agree. Listen, I'm going to say goodbye to everybody, and I thank those. Who, I, I feel bad for Nat, who called in, and I couldn't keep him on the, on the, on the phone. Uh, but, okay. And um, 
Take care. Yeah. Take care. Thank everybody, and uh, I'll be talking to you, Lou. All right. Fine. Bye. Bye bye.